ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 30th of January. I'm Sabra Lang, coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. The United States says it won't tolerate the drone attack which killed three American troops and wounded dozens of others in Jordan. The US Defence Secretary's made that vow as more details emerge about the attack, which marks a major escalation in tensions in the Middle East. North America correspondent Jade McMillan is in Washington. Jade, is it any clearer how the United States will respond? Well, the US has blamed Iran-backed militants for this attack. It was a pre-dawn strike on a military base in northeast Jordan near the Syrian border when many of the troops there were still in their beds. And American media outlets are reporting that the base's air defences are thought to have failed to stop it because it coincided with the return of an American drone. So there was some confusion over whether it was an enemy drone or not. But three American troops were killed and at least 34 have been injured, with some feared to have traumatic brain injuries. The President, Joe Biden, has been meeting members of his national security team in the Situation Room of the White House today. He said yesterday that the US would respond, that it would hold all of those responsible to account at a time and manner of its choosing. But we still don't know what that will look like. This is how the Defence Secretary, Lloyd Austin, characterised what would happen next when he spoke at the Pentagon earlier. Let me start with my outrage and sorrow for the deaths of three brave US troops in Jordan and for the other troops who were wounded. The President and I will not tolerate attack on US forces and we will take all necessary actions to defend the US and our troops. And Jade, what about concerns that this could spark a wider conflict? Well, the US has previously retaliated against attacks from Iran-backed militants in Iraq, Syria and Yemen in the months since the war between Israel and Hamas began. But this is the first time that American troops have been killed as a direct result of one of those attacks. And the US president is under pressure to respond forcefully, including from some Americans in Congress. Senator Lindsey Graham, for example, has argued that the United States should strike targets of significance inside Iran, he says, as reprisal for the American deaths and also to deter against future aggression. Joe Biden, though, is needing to weigh up calls like that against concerns about further escalation and a broader conflict. His National Security Council spokesman, John Kirby, pointed to that when he spoke to CNN. We don't seek a war with with Iran. We're not looking uh, for a wider conflict in the Middle East. In fact, every action the president has taken has been designed to de-escalate, to try to bring the tensions down. Uh, And obviously this attack, very, very serious, uh, certainly escalatory on the behalf of uh, of these militia groups. We we have to take that seriously and we will, but I'm not going to get ahead of the president's decision space one way or the other. Other world leaders have also weighed in. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has condemned the attack on the American troops and he's urged Iran to de-escalate tensions in the region. Jane McMillan there in Washington. There's a glimmer of hope for a new pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. A draft deal will be put to Hamas offering a pause in hostilities in exchange for the release of more Israeli hostages who were taken in the October the 7th terror attacks in Israel. Global Affairs Editor John Lyons is in Jerusalem. John, 
who's working on this new agreement that could result in more hostages being released? Sabra, the heads of the CIA and Mossad and officials from Egypt and Qatar have been meeting for several days in Paris. And then Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State in Washington, has been meeting Qatari officials. And the Qataris are now saying there's good progress that's been made and that a new proposal is being put to Hamas. 132 hostages still remain in Gaza. Most of them are Israelis and Israelis with dual nationalities, particularly from the US. So there are positive signs that there may be another major hostage deal. So what are the main hurdles that could jeopardise the release of more hostages? Up until now, Israel has been suggesting a two-month ceasefire in return for all 132 hostages. Hamas has been saying no to that quite strongly. They are saying it must be a permanent ceasefire, not a temporary one of two months. The significance now is that the the Qatari Prime Minister, Sheikh Mohammed bin Al Thani, is saying that Hamas has agreed to move away from that position. In other words, they will accept a shorter ceasefire of a month or two to release those hostages. But intriguingly, what he's also saying is that the current round of talks could lead to a permanent ceasefire. In other words, it could be an end to the war altogether. John, what could be the effect on these talks from any US retaliation for the Iranian-backed drone strikes on its troops in Jordan? Clearly, the situation here is fragile. This latest hostage proposal has been weeks and weeks in the making. But both Israel and Hamas and all the key players, the US and Qatar and others, all want this to happen. So I suspect that this deal will happen even if there is retaliation by the US. That's John Lyons there in Jerusalem. There's little relief in sight for renters struggling to keep up with the rising cost of keeping a roof over their heads. The latest data shows while the pace of rent increases is beginning to taper off, rental properties are becoming harder to find with listings at historic lows. Nick Grimm reports. As students prepare for universities to start classes for the year, some like Akshay Bade are already learning just how hard it is to find somewhere to rent. I'm here as a student here and it's quite expensive. It's uh, getting a little difficult, you know, to find accommodation for students. So they are charging 700, 800, 900, like whatever comes up to their minds. Even the temporary ones are quite costly. So have you found somewhere to live or are you still searching? So right now what we do is we get a temporary accommodation somewhere. Anyways, we have to pay. Uh, It's quite expensive, but we wait for it to die down and then uh, we get, get some good place. And it's not just Akshay Bade and his friends finding it tough to crack the rental market. Yeah, it's been my experience, it's been my friend's experience. I think, yeah, there's just a lack of properties available or there's a lot of demand for them. Yeah, it's true. This woman worries how her adult son still living at home will ever be able to find his own place. I've heard that, it's going up and it it is difficult for young people. Maybe the owners should put the rent down and help them out. But most rents are only going up. And while new data out today shows the rate of rent hikes has slowed a little, the turnover in rental properties has also hit a record low. The PropTrack rental report for December shows new rental listings last month were 4.6% lower than a year ago. Cameron Kusher is PropTrack's Director of Economic Research. It's still an extremely challenging rental market with very low volumes of stock. Of course, we've got strong population growth, which is putting more competition for the rental market. And 
we're seeing a high level of demand for rental properties. So unfortunately for those that are looking to rent, it's still a very tough slog out there in the market. And in terms of the uh, the turnover of properties, is it the case that renters are deciding that it's better the devil they know and the rent increases they're receiving there than trying to uh, shop around and find a, a new place to live, which may not be any cheaper, in fact, might be more expensive? It's hard to sort of see that in any of the data, but I have a strong suspicion that that is happening. I think if people have a rental, they're more inclined to stay there as long as they are in a position to be able to do that because everyone's seen on social media and and those sorts of things, how many people are turning up for these rental inspections. So I think there is generally a strong preference to stay where you are unless the landlord is being completely unreasonable with how much they're asking for those rents to increase. Meanwhile, states and territories are being urged to introduce tougher regulation of the rental market. Uh, No one's doing anything, I'm afraid. Australian states and territories don't regulate rents for affordability. Dr Chris Martin is with the City Futures Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. The one partial exception is the ACT where landlords who want to increase their rent above a, a guideline a legislative guideline, which is the CPI rent figure for the ACT plus 10%. If they want to increase by more than that guideline amount, then they have to go to the ACT's tribunal and show that that increase is not excessive to the general market level of rents for that sort of property. By international standards, that's a really light touch um, form of regulation for rents. And, And having a simple speed limit of not more than, say, 3% a year, I think would be a sensible way of regulating that really crucial cost for households. Dr Chris Martin from the University of New South Wales, Nick Grimm with that report. Prominent human rights lawyer Rosemary K.S. starts her new role today as Disability Discrimination Commissioner, and she has lived experience. She sustained a spinal cord injury in a car accident in her teens and uses a powered wheelchair. The Commissioner begins her job at an interesting time, following the findings from the Royal Commission and the review into the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And in an interview with our National Disability Affairs reporter, Naz Campanella, she says the Disability Discrimination Act needs reform. The Act has been applied in some very narrow and technical ways that really makes it difficult for people with disabilities to be able to assert their rights and seek remedies for discrimination now. I think it can't be a successful piece of anti-discrimination law without amendment. But we also can't continue to rely on the DDA as the means to drive change for people with disability. It is in and of itself a piece of anti-discrimination law. It is not a broader rights mechanism and so it can only address certain areas. The Disability Royal Commission recommended the introduction of a Disability Rights Act. Do you agree with that? Oh, look, the protection of the rights of people with disabilities is always something I'm going to agree with. I am reluctant to establish something that is protecting the rights of one group of people without recognising that we need to protect the rights and promote the rights of all people within Australia. And so my preference would be for a overall Human Rights Act rather than 
a Specialist Disability Rights Act. I think that the proposal through the Australian Human Rights Commission for a Human Rights Act is probably the best way to go and that a Disability Rights Act would be one limb of that Human Rights Act. The Royal Commissioners were split on the idea of how to end segregation in group homes, employment and education. How do you think we can do that? People with disability shouldn't be siloed and defined specifically by their diagnosis or a need for care. What we do then is that we exclude people from the mainstream society and they end up in closed environments that leave them vulnerable to violence, abuse and neglect. And so what we do then is we create a system that creates more problems. And so I think we need a greater understanding of disability as just one aspect of the human condition that we need to understand that people with disability are not a homogenous group, that they are very diverse and have very differing lifestyles and wants and needs and that they should have the choice and control to live their lives how they wish. And so we can't keep creating these separate specialist systems to place people with disabilities and leave them excluded from the rest of the society. Ending segregation is incredibly necessary to be able to ensure that people can live in the community, be part of the community, be educated with their peers and their siblings and work in an open labour market for real wages. What are the biggest challenges facing people with disability in Australia right now? For lots of people, it will be that they don't have a voice. They don't have legal capacity. They're caught up in forms of guardianship that take control of their life away from them. There's a whole heap of people that are caught between two systems, between the health system and the disability system. And they have psychosocial disability and it's very difficult in Australia the way that interrelationship between those policy areas work. Sexual and reproductive rights is still a huge issue for women. The way it's dealt with in Australia is it focuses, like the Royal Commission report, it focuses on sterilisation. But there are so many more issues that need to be raised. I don't think there's any great one defining thing that is confronting people with disability, but I think each person with a disability is facing something significant to be able to say, this is a frustrating process. What can we expect from you as a commissioner during your time? My focus will be on ensuring the rights of people with disabilities. I want us to have a, an understanding of disability that doesn't see it as something special, something different. We need to recognise that impairment is just a natural element of the human condition and that we don't naturally need something special and something segregated and something different that isolates us from the world. We need to be supported and included in 
the design and the development and the infrastructure of our society to ensure that we can participate equally. Disability Discrimination Commissioner Rosemary K.S. speaking there with Naz Campanella. With multiple inquiries into supermarket prices underway, there's also a push to make sure that there's a secure supply of food, particularly as urban sprawl encroaches on farming land. A Victorian parliamentary inquiry is looking at the pressures on the food bowl for one of our biggest cities, as Jacqueline Breen reports. Catherine Valicia's family has been growing vegetables in Werribee South on the outskirts of Melbourne for almost a century. We're third generation, so my grandfather started farming out here in um, the early 1930s. The Valicias grow broccoli, cauliflower and celery, but the location on the southwest edge of Melbourne also means it's prime land for development, which is what happened next door in Werribee. Werribee South hasn't changed that much. However, Werribee itself has changed dramatically and it flourished into a city. So it's not really a town anymore. It's definitely a city. There's a lot of, you know, new Australians that live here. Um, We've obviously got hospitals and universities and, you know, it is becoming such a really big city hub. An estimated 25% of agricultural output still comes from farms on the fringes of our major cities. Rachel Carey is from the School of Agriculture and Food at the University of Melbourne. It's actually never been more important to protect farmland around our cities, firstly because of population growth, but also because we're experiencing more shocks and stresses to our food supply from climate change, especially floods, storms and fire. And these events can actually disrupt our food supply by cutting off roads into cities, for example. So it really makes sense to keep some production of fresh foods close to our cities. As Melbourne continues to grow, a Victorian parliamentary inquiry is examining the impact of urban sprawl on agriculture and farming. Rachel Carey says it's an opportunity to strengthen protections for the urban food bowl that have been put in place but didn't go far enough. If you look at Melbourne as an example, we do have an urban growth boundary Um, which is intended to fix the boundary of the city, but that urban growth boundary has still changed multiple times. And, of course, we also have the green wedges around Melbourne. And, again, um, those green wedges are meant to protect farmland around the city, but we're still losing that farmland. She suggests the creation of a food production zone in planning laws to create certainty for farm investment and infrastructure, which is something Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano says is sorely needed. There's been a a lack of long-term planning um, for the state of Victoria, and this is something that we've been calling for, like a strategic land use um, map. Uh, It not only impacts where we have houses or where we have farms, we also have to think about it from the perspective of where are we generating electricity, how are we transmitting that electricity, where are people going to be living. We know that there's population growth, both organic population growth in Australia and um, migration is also leading population growth. So we know that there's going to be more people to feed, but also as we're building more houses, less land to be growing agricultural crops and uh, doing agricultural production on. So again, it's really important that we have a long-term strategy that's not a five-year strategy or a 10-year strategy, but a 50-year strategy. Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano ending Jacqueline Breen's report, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Just before Christmas, journalist Antoinette Latouf was filling in on ABC Radio in Sydney. 
when three days into a five-day contract, she was told, don't come back. She's now accusing the ABC of unlawful dismissal. So what happens when social media collides with the workplace? Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.